Hello, and welcome to Ice Age Prep Reads. Season 3, Seed of Knowledge, Stone of Plenty. Chapter 5, Before the Inca. As I mentioned before, this book does have a lot of images, so I highly recommend getting a copy for yourself, either off of Scrib.com, which is where I'm reading it from, or a physical copy so you can see the images. Chapter 5, Before the Inca. Quote, to create out of the human spirit something which did not exist before, end quote. William Faulkner, Nobel Speech Prize. In the eastern part of the mountain range Cordillera Blanca in northern Peru, in a valley about 10,300 feet above sea level and near the present-day village of Chavin de Hauntar, Hauntar, H-U-A-N-T-A-R, Guantar, lies the ruins of what was the first dazzling cultural empire of South America cradle of agriculture. What forces gave birth to the civilization that flourished here long before the Inca? Some 10 miles from the village, the mountain Nevado de Juanstan, believed to be the abode of the local guardian deities, soars to 20,976 feet. Even today, the residents of Chauvin consider the nearby peaks to be inhabited by spirits. From Nevado de Wanson, a stream called Wachesca tumbles down to join the Mosna River. Something about this small river was unusual. It became a sacred site for Oracle, a process that involves the alteration of consciousness. People visiting the stream felt they could communicate with the powers of the earth here. This practice continued here for some 2,400 years until the Spanish conquest. Shortly after 900 AD, a stone structure was erected at the site. This building was not simple, nor was it small, and since no one lived nearby, great effort was required to erect it. The entire valley could have only supported around 2,000 people, so many from outside the region came to help erect the large stone building, half the size of a football field and 45 feet high. It had few doors and was honeycombed with passages, stairways, air vents and windowless rooms with large flat stones for ceilings, stones that were used nowhere else in the area. Essential to what happened here seems to have been the oracle, oracular stream. Throughout the lower level, the water was channeled through some stone passages down the natural slope, the stone courses fanning out below the building, but not leading to any fields or houses. The purpose was not to irrigate, it was something else. Could it be energy? Certainly, the same Olmec structures of San Lorenzo come to mind when we wonder about the purpose of the ancient Peruvian builders. Shortly after the building at Chavan de Juanter was erected, visitors began streaming in from every direction. Despite its remote location, Chavan grew to an enormous complex, 20 times its original size. Besides the stone building, a sunken courtyard was dug and its side lined with stone. Lined with stone. The canals angled off to also channel the rushing water under the court. As we shall see later, such sunken courtyards were common in Andean architecture. It seems that the electrically active rushing water was the central force of this semi-subterranean feature. And Chavan de Huantar prospered. Before long, gold and silver began showing up in this underpopulated area. All these features, however, would later find their embodiment on a far larger scale in the south of Peru, which the most, with the most fascinating civilization never to grace the continent. It too flourished long before the Inca. 
Iwanaka of Titicaca. The highlands of Peru and Bolivia, the Altiplano, is a harsh place. Fierce winds blow over this 13,000 foot high treeless plateau where a merciless sun burns by day and temperatures drop below freezing at night. People who graze herds of llama and alpaca, but the thought of farming in this climate on this thin, poor soil seems ludicrous, and today its agricultural base supports only a widely scattered population. The Altiplano is dotted with lakes, some of, which, some of which are remarkably beautiful, colored, bright green or red by trillions of minute algae. Queen among these lakes is Titicaca, the highest navigable lake in the world. A thousand years before the Inca, a people lived in the southern shores of this enormous lake in the village of Tiahuanaco. Their society was dominated by the principles of duality and complementary of the sexes, shown for example in their carved images of paired males and females. You would expect these bleak highlands to be the last place for a high civilization to develop, but nearly 2,000 years ago, Tiwanaka began to stand out from its neighbors. Why? Its land was no better, and it boasted no desirable harbor on the lake. It did not lie on lucrative trade routes nor sit astride valuable mineral deposits. It seems that none of the factors traditionally regarded by historians as central to the emergence of power and wealth were present. Yet, at its height, circa 500 AD, Tiwanaka teemed with a population of about 40,000, probably making it the largest city outside of Asia in its day. Yet food production mysteriously seemed to be no problem, and the town was renowned for its agricultural surpluses. Even the poorest peasants grew and estimated three times the food they required and traded to excess, becoming prosperous. One key to the success of Tiwanaka's food production was raised bed agriculture. This method was also used with great success by the Maya and the Aztec. During the dry season, the lake bottom was dug up and heaped into ridges that would be above the, water, the wet season water level. These ridges were flattened into tiny farm plots, becoming surrounded by water during the rainy season. Blood scraped from the water, watery bottom each year was dumped on the plot as fertilizer. The high water table would keep the soil of the platform relatively moist while the warm air above the canals raised the plots around the raised plots tended to mitigate the damaging effects of temperature extremes. Modern studies recreating raised bed farms on Lake Tiwanaka have shown that with this technique potatoes were produced at triple the rate of modern methods. Yet the raised bed method has not been widely readopted today because construction of the beds requires immense sustained efforts. The people of Tiwanaka were clearly energetic enough to make such efforts. Aerial views of the southern shores of Titicaca show seemingly endless stretches of the remains of ancient raised beds, farmed for centuries when the water level of the lake was higher. However, important raised bed farming was to Tiwanaka at its height, this was not what originally distinguished the village from its neighbors. Raised beds did not appear in great numbers here until 5 to 600 AD centuries after the town had begun to prosper. After 18 years of excavating and studying Tiwanaka, archaeologist Alan Colada of the University of Chicago concluded that what gave the village an advantage over the nearby villages was the fact that after its people had commenced erecting huge megalithic structures, Tiwanaka began to prosper in an unprecedented way. People from the surrounding regions were streaming into the village on what is normally referred to as religious pilgrimage. 
Yakulada emphasizes that even the present-day religion of Armara, a direct descendant of Tiwanakans, despite its long intermarriage with Catholicism, focused only on practical results. Yakulada notes, On the high plateau, spiritual insight flows from hard living on the land, from the yearly cycle of planting, irrigating, weeding, and harvesting. Ritual is grounded in reality, and reality becomes ritual. Through the spiritual life, the Amara see health, abundance, and fertility, not a vague sense of harmony with Mother Earth. They are, in a real sense, mystics, but not the esoteric kind enshrined in our common imagination. Here, the spiritual dimension is found in the ordinary acts of objects in everyday life, the smell of eucalyptus burning in the hearth, and the rich, smoky flavor of a new potato baked in a clay oven far from the earth." Artificial Hills and Megaliths One thing, however, distinguished Tiwanaka from the other villages, its geology. The village sits in a small valley, flanked by seismically active faults. Up through the cracks of the major faults had well-rich deposits of basalt. The type of basalt cherished by the Tiwanakans for the megalith building is the cousin of diorite, the material of the famous bluestones of Stonehenge. Like diorite, this rock is also magnetic. It is so much associated with volcanic Andes that the geologists have named it andesite. Or sorry, andesite, not andesite. Andesite. None of the andesite used in the monumental buildings was quarried near the village. In fact, the nearest major quarries seem to have been 45 miles away across the lake on the far side of the twin peninsulas of Copacabana and Huata, where small deposits of andesite are found near the water. Amazingly, it is assumed that the Tiwanakans floated quarried blocks across the lake from here because the unthinkable alternative was to haul them over mountains. And if you think the builders of Stonehenge were impressive in hauling four-ton blocks of diorite, try to imagine the people of Tiwanaka transporting andesite monoliths weighing up to 140 tons. Near the village, they erected buildings of andesite and red sandstone, the most magnetic type. Some of the buildings were constructed on top of an artificial hill called Acapana, 56 feet high. Little European explorers just assumed Acapana was a natural hill. Even when told otherwise by the Amara, they refused to believe that anyone had created this massive structure in such a forlorn place. The body of the pyramid was composed of andesite rock blocks fitted so tightly together that even today, a playing card cannot be inserted between them. There's an image of this. In similar cases in England, human skulls, long bones, and mandibles part of dedicatory burials, accompanying the laying of the foundation. Then clay with its electrical conductivity was piled up, followed by a layer of special type of gravel from the lake. These pebbles were rich green in color, no doubt because of their high content of copper, the most electrically conductive mineral besides pure gold. Clay went atop the copper pebbles, followed by more pebbles and again clay. And then there's several pages of images. Altered Consciousness Even today, the andesite outcrop high above the ruined city of Tiwanaka is sacred to local Amaras, who make pilgrimages up there every spring. 
Ancient petroglyphs carved into the rock walls here show the site was special to the original inhabitants as well. Archaeologist Colada accompanied a group of Amara shamans on a pilgrimage to the state that his consciousness became dramatically altered as soon as they set foot in a field of andesite bedrock underlain by a rushing stream. Colada tells us, quote, I know at this point of transition I felt distinctly strange, possessed of an exquisite yet disturbing hypersensitivity. My senses seemed abnormally acute. I could focus with great clarity on individual sounds and sights, but my overall perceptions of people and landscapes seemed indistinct. Even now I remember the small details of objects, of places, of scenes with extraordinary precision, while my immersion of the whole experience is incohot. If this stage of the pilgrimage was evoking these emotional states in me, what was happening to the mind and the sensibilities of the Amara companions, and especially the shamans? The shamans continued to the far edge of the Andesite, to a point where it meets a sandstone ridge and a granite outcrop where a spring forced its way out of the rock wall. Sitting here as sunset was following by darkness, the chief shaman underwent an epileptic-like convulsion and entered a trance. During this trance, the shaman would sense whether or not this year's growing season would be a good one. How could he know? We wonder whether the electric mobility of the shaman's temporal lobes enabled him to gauge the degree of electric energy in the earth. A spot like this should be electromagnetically powerful, and as we have seen, even the archaeologists were dramatically affected. The shamans attempted to mediate with the ispalas of, the, of their crops. According to one Amari shaman, the spirits of the ispalas are the spirits of the fields, the spirits of the harvest, the forces within the seeds of the edible plants. These ispalas are reported to be the same force that can draw a shaman into a trance. Ispa means both twin and a large potato, their main crop thought to be struck by lightning, and then called potato with two faces. Ispalas, lightning twins, shamans, and the proper growth of fruit crops are all entangled in the mind of the Amara. All but the twins are recurring factors in our investigation. Down the drain. Throughout the interior of the Akapana pyramid, special drains made of andesite and sandstone were laid out. They would alternate between closed channels inside the hill and open channels outside, moving in and out, plunging abruptly to the next level in small waterfalls, and finally cascading to the Andesite Foundation five stories below. Some commentators have described these spillways as intended to imitate mountain streams running now inside, now outside rock faces. The drains were almost dramatically sealed so that very little of the electrically charged air could escape just as they had been in Siobhan and in the Olmec area. The splashing of the water running down the inside the drains would generate electric charge. Like the Olmec, the Tiwanakans might have noticed the electric, electrical properties of running water, as well as the effect on the human mind of magnetic forces. Also, the effects on their crops might have been noticed, and they wanted to copy this effect. The wet and highly conductive rock segments of the drain were made all of the more electrically conductive being bound together with clamps made of copper. Into T-shaped grooves carved into the edges of adjacent stone blocks, 
Liquid copper was poured, binding the blocks tightly together and forming an electrically conductive bridge between them. The entire length of the drains coursing through the inside of the hill would become electrified. The top layer consisted of copper gravel. In the center, an artificial pond held tens of thousands of gallons of what would be released water that would be released into the drain stream by lifting a sluice gate, again similar to the Olmec system. According to the archaeologist Arthur Poznanski, the stone buildings atop Akapana were made of andesite. They were too cramped, plain, and unadorned to have ever been designed for ceremony and ritual. It's unlikely that anybody would be living there with no hearths for the frigid climate and no kitchen. All that was found inside these windowless buildings was broken shards of undecorated utilitarian pottery and the remains of corn and small potatoes, perhaps seed corn and seed potatoes. Even today, the seed potatoes are a common ritual offering of Amaran shrines. If the Tiwanikans ultimately removed and used their offerings like the Maya, this could be the way they had discovered the seed enhancement potential of the early shrines. Around 600 AD, the drains of Akapana got clogged and stopped flowing. Another man-made hill was erected less than a mile away, at Puma Punka, even closer to the fault. It was threaded within by similar andesite drains. Here they not only ran down through the man-made mound to the base of the artificially modified rock outcrop on which the complex was erected, but also ran through farm fields. As one commentator put it, thus unambiguously linking the summit complex with agricultural productivity. In fact, it is generally assumed that the leaders of Tiwanaka, as with, later the, later, as with the later Inca, derived their power and legitimacy from the fact that they guarantee agricultural and reproductive success. Seed enhancement? A semi-subterranean courtyard called Calasea with several hundred yards on one side again lined with andesite and red sandstone. These huge rectangular enclosures seems to have originally been marked off by standing pillars of natural, unworked magnetite and andesite. This pattern is reminiscent of similar places marked off by pillars of different types of basalt, serpentine, at the Olmec sites of Levanta. Leventa. The fact that the inside surface of the pillars, and only the inside surface, smooth and flattened is reminiscence of Stonehenge. Later, the Tiwanakans further enclosed the Kalasaya by filling the spaces between the pillars with blocks of cut stone, as if to more completely contain something within its walls. Sunrise on the two equinoxes, equinoxes bisect the courtyard when none of the design was actually necessary to that purpose. The whole structure functions to achieve an energetic end. The drain from Akapana ran around the inner edge at the base of the stones, possibly to help fill the courtyard with airborne ions, linking the courtyard as a series of small stone, stone rooms. They have always puzzled investigators, having no windows, benches, or decorations. No indication that they were ever used for ceremonial as well as standard utilitarian purposes. If they had the now familiar large flat stone slab ceilings and were designed with small doors that would minimize air turbulence inside, just what you would need to separate electrically charged components of the air and generated pulses. The builders went to the extra trouble of providing some sliding doors of heavy stone slabs to seal and open them at will. 
as we shall see later discovery as we shall <laughs> as we shall later discover in chapter six a slab roof rock chambers in new england dramatically enhanced the growth of wheat bean and corn seed is this what the builders of teo and Akabra after would it justify such herculean labors on the alta plano during the frigid high altitude nights one of the greatest threats to farmers cold damage to their seedlings early in the year Today on the Alta Plano, frost heavily damages crops on average three years out of five and entirely destroys one crop in five years. Getting the crop through the vulnerable seeding stage as quickly as possible would lessen this threat. This is exactly what the New England rock chambers have done to seed placed in them. Increase the rate of germination, improve seedling growth, seedling tolerance to cold and stress, and finally made such seed produce up to three times more food. Remember also, it has been estimated that the presence of te peasants of Tiwanaka grew three times the amount produced by other Andean peasants. On the northeast tip of Cocobana Peninsula, on a hill above Lake Titicaca, lies a cluster of drywall, corbel vaulted, oval rocked chambers named Podopodo. When they were excavated, many contained no bones, and therefore were never the tombs that archaeologists labeled them as. Others contained bones, but they were intrusive burials, placed here long after the structure was built. The chambers have large flat rocks of roof slabs similar to those of all the chambers known to improve seed performance. Another cluster of both rectangular and beehive-shaped rock chambers lies on Takira, Takira Island close to the northeast corner of Cocobana Copacabana Peninsula. Wow. One of the chambers held 12 skulls, reminiscent of the interred skulls at the causeway enclosures that we shall visit later in England. All these chambers look across a few miles of the lake to take Tiwanaka, the rocket that gave birth to the sun. Center of mythology and religion of the Tiwanakans, as well as their Inca successors, was an object on the island that is today called Isla de Sol, Island of the Sun. The Inca have often been called sun worshippers, but their own Temple of the Sun stands second to this object of reverence on the still sacred Isla de Sol. The island was considered the center of the world and the site of the origin of life, not only by the people of Tiwanaka, but even by the Inca a thousand years later. Tiwakasa in Titicaca comes from Titicala, meaning Rock of the Wild Cat, named after the supreme mythological figure of the jaguar, which throughout the Americas was considered the symbol of fertility. From this rock, the island and the enormous lake itself take their names. Legend says that when the whole world was dark, the sun itself was born from this rock. Could this legend have arisen from the presence of a ball of orange light rising off this rock one night? Similar balls have appeared around the world near fault lines and conductivity discontinuities. It is known that after the Inca kicked the Tiwanakans out, the chief Inca would travel all the way here from Cusco for East New Year's dawn and by his presence help to usher life back to the world. Whatever might have made it famous, the Rock of the Cat is certainly not reserved for its vista. 
Sighted on the northwest neck of the island, the view from here is described as monotonous, whereas elsewhere on the island there are spectacular views of the highest range of snow-capped Andes towering over the deep blue waters of the lake. In a saddle between bumps on a ridge, the rock of the cat appears as a shapeless lump measuring 130 by 190 feet. The rock is red sandstone, the most magnetic type. According to legend, there is a sacred cave in the rock, but in fact the cave is a natural recess with a simple altar in it. On either side of the recess is a two meter size nodule of exposed ilmenite, a magnetic mineral. These nodules are also sacred. The electromagnetic forces of these rocks may be enough to alter people's consciousness. On the ground below are what archaeologist Adolf Bandelier called finely worked slabs of prismatic andesite, brought from outside the island. The prismatic part of his description reminds us of the seemingly crystallized surface of the highly magnetic roof slabs in the rock chamber shown in plate 17. Again, images in this book if you want to see them. Like the stream at Siobhan and the tunnel below the Aztec Pyramid of the Sun, the Rock of the Cat was said to have oracular effects. Another phenomenon here might also have garnered notice. In 1910, Bandelier was told that no birds ever flew over the rock. One wonders if that interferes with their magnetic navigation senses. The place where people lose themselves. The eastern half of Isla de Sol is primarily compro compromised of a 200 meter thick layer of dark limestone, extending both above and below the brilliant blue of the lake surface. Riddled with springs, it rises in cliffs and sheep, steep hillside, hillsides from the lake. <clears throat> As we shall see in chapter 9, the electromagnetic properties of such carbonaceous strata like chalk and limestone are powerful when water moves through them. On this limestone, the Tiwanakans concentrated their building. The structures were made of stone, ranging up to half the size of a football field. They were filled with mazes of tiny rooms. There were no windows, no chimneys, no light, usually only one small door, and no appreciable air circulation. As dwellings, they would be torture chambers. The ceilings are interesting, interesting generally being large stone slabs, just like in the rock chambers or dolmens. Some are highly corbelled to assume a beehive-like shape. Inside, it can be expected to create the kind of air separation present at the seed-enhancing chambers of New England. Some of the large chambers had andesite doorways. Whatever these structures were used for, they were not tombs. The Tiwanakans must have been satisfied with the results because they continued to erect bigger buildings. A thousand years later, the Incas threw the Tiwanakans off the island claimed possession of it for themselves, and built even bigger structures. Interestingly, the buildings invariably follow the lay of the land. The boulder stuck out of the hillside, it was not removed, but incorporated into the wall like the rock chamber shown in plate 19. Although the hillside all over the island were terraced for farming, no one ever changed the ground level of these buildings. They simply followed the natural contours, although that meant irregularities in building in the building everywhere. Such behavior was puzzling, 
unless there was something valuable in the ground that the Tiwanakans did not want to alter. 450 feet away from the Rock of the Cat is the building that in the beginning of the 17th century was known as Jinkana, or the place where people lose themselves. Too cramped and unadorned to be a place, as it is colloquially referred to today in travel guides, and too big to be a warehouse for the limited population of the island. It consists of 20 tiny rooms with large stone slabs on their corbelled, bolted ceilings. It was built to surround a spring. The walls are 2 to 8 feet thick, but only 8 feet high, similar to the other rock chambers around the world. Vandelaire states, quote, The whole complex has but one small air hole, to which the name of window cannot in justice be given. End quote. We shall later discuss how geomagnetic fluctuations are maximized by what geophysicists call the island of the peninsula effect. The rock of the cat lies on the northwestern neck of the island. The entire side of the island is composed primarily of Devonian shell and quartzite. What is fascinating is that the major seismic fault in the area runs right along the side of the island. It hugs the coast and runs up along the promontory upon the rock sits. This combination subject the area to well-known piezoelectric effect in which quartz under pressure, such as tectonic strain, develops electric charge. It is believed to be this mechanism that causes productions of earthquake lights serious glowing balls, and even large hemispheres of corona discharged during earthquakes. They might even look like a rising sun. The entire island is a perfect site for maximizing natural electromagnetic forces, and the visual appearance of these forces may be enshrined in the local folklore. The sloping point of the Sequoia Promontory, uh, where such forces could be expected to be at their maximum, is covered with Ophratory cysts, from which gold statues have been recovered. When the conquistadors began pillaging the site, the local inhabitants would make their offerings by lowering them into the underwater extensions of the ridge. Even today, no one crosses over this ridge in a boat unless to make an offering, the purpose of which is to seek fertility for the crops. End of the Golden Age According to Colada, who is arguably the premier authority today on this site, the Tiwanakans developed huge agricultural surpluses, attained in the most unlikely of places, and used them as the basis for trade, transforming the village into the center of the most powerful kingdom in South America until the Inca. While the empire of the Inca lasted only 150 years, the Tiwanakans reigned for more than a thousand. Only a devastating centuries-long drought could end it around 1200 AD. In what they considered superior wisdom, the Spanish conquerors instructed the locals what to grow. Wheat, olives, and other European crops were introduced, crops totally unsuitable for the high-altitude climate of the Andes and the Altiplano. The transformation was performed with what the Spaniard, Spanish considered modern farming practices simply meaning the European ones. These crops failed, and the formerly rich cultures plummeted into poverty. And still today it is so. The current sad state of Andean agriculture is the inevitable result of a paradox of modern farming. 
The methods employed are those espoused by the 21st century farmers using heavy doses of artificial additives to their fields, such as chemical fertilizers, herbicides, and pesticides. Today is Peruvian and Bolivian farmers cannot afford these additives. The result is exhausted land. The nutrients of the Andes and the altiplano soils are long depleted. The pathetic returns from farming this land can only support a fraction of the number of people who inhabited the Tiwanakan and Incan empires. A new approach is needed desperately. Perhaps it should be an old approach. And that is the end of chapter 5. A list of all the references for the citations is at the end of each chapter. Thank you guys for joining me. Next chapter is chapter 6, Rock Chambers of New England. I think it's going to be a good one. Actually, I've really enjoyed this whole book so far. Um, a couple of interesting thoughts that I had while I was reading this chapter. Um, one, all the rock enclosures with stone slabs and heavy doors. Um, really interesting that those particular things, especially when the, what they were made out of, produced the electricity electrical and magnetic activity inside of them. Um, and the first thing that came to my mind when I was reading that was, oh, um, well, in, you know, the modern the, the story goes that Jesus was put into a chamber and then came out of it three days later and he was alive. Um, now, whether that's true or not, it's interesting that the, the stone structures, right, maybe that's the thing. I don't know. It was just a thought that came to my mind. I have no idea. Um, yeah. And then there was, um, oh, the other thing, the end of the Golden Age, the centuries-long drought that ended the Tiwanakans around 1200 A.D. also curious to see what else was going on in 1200 A.D. Um, in terms of the solar activity, solar cycle, um, and see what the alignments of the gas giants in our solar system was to see if there was any sort of ice age or longer minimum type event going on around there as well um, that might describe or might be you know happening at the same time you know it's interesting how much the sun affects all the I mean they even talk about it in this book how these sites are more active at sunrise when the sun is impacting those sites there's a higher electrical and magnetic activity. Well, in times of solar minimums, and moving of magnetic shoot, uh, poles of the Earth, these sites become problematic, potentially, because there's not a, as much electricity going through them. Just another thought that I had while I was reading that end part there, end of the Golden Age. Things that make you go, hmm. So maybe I'll do some research and talk about that at the end of the next chapter what I find out that happened around 1200 AD. Thanks so much for joining me, guys. Be safe, and I'll talk to you next time.